Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder from Canada, uh, out of Toronto, that I think that uh, he's going to be teaching us quite a bit on building and scaling. I mean, he's done it a few times, going through the full cycle, uh, also grew up, you know, his parents also were entrepreneurs, so it's going to be interesting to really hear that transition and that journey. So I guess without further ado, Derek Fung, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So originally born and raised there in, in Toronto. So uh, how was life there growing up and especially being, you know, in a family that was very much entrepreneurial? Yeah, no, Toronto's a great place. Um, you know, especially more and more in recent in recent times, it's been really getting, getting on the radar with, you know, musicians like Drake and at the Toronto Raptors recently winning the, the NBA championships. But uh, Toronto's a great city. Um, you know, having lived in New York City as well, um, you know, Toronto is like a mini version of New York, uh, very diverse, um, you know, community of, of, uh, of really nice people here. Um, it's, it's been a great city to me. Uh, we have great talent for tech. Uh, we have great schools. And so um, for anyone who's listening, who's never been to Toronto, highly recommend uh, you make a trip out. Yeah, and I'll have to second that, especially because my wife is Canadian. Otherwise, she will get pissed if she listens to this episode. So, uh, uh, so good stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, she's from Montreal. But, uh, but anyhow, Derek, uh, tell us about, because I know that you are very much, um, um, you know, a finance and, and economics kind of guy. And that's actually also what you, what you studied. So, um, so how did you start to develop that love for, for, let's say, for like numbers? I mean, was that maybe like something that you saw growing up and, you know, your parents telling you how important it was to, to have a real grasp on the numbers? Or, or how did you develop the love for that and for business? Uh, I'd say just growing up, you know, uh, I was big on the Internet. And um, I'd say part of it was from my parents, uh, my dad in the medical field, um, you know, of course, numbers being very important, but a lot of it was just growing up and, and, uh, whether it's through, you know, video games or, um, a lot of the, you know, playing chess online. Um, I'd say growing up with the internet, uh, kind of at your fingertips was, was what helped me, um, you know, get better, 
um, with numbers and also, you know, helped drive my fascination with the, with the economy and the economics and finance and Wall Street and uh, here in Canada, it's called Bay Street and stock trading and, and computers and all that fun stuff. So I really say, you know, think it's a part of the environment I had growing up and, and uh, it was just always something I was, you know, pretty good at. And even as an entrepreneur and as a startup founder, you know, numbers don't disappear. I think it's something that's very important, uh, whether you're raising money or, or uh, you know, building a financial projection for, you know, your, your financial forecast. I think um, uh, it's really that, that the way I grew up that's really led, uh, led me to be very fascinated with some of these things. And especially one of the things that, that I saw here is that you also did amazing internships. So it's like once you were ready for, for the labor market, you were more than prepared. You know, it's typically not the case. So, so I mean, how did that happen and what did you learn from that? Yeah, yeah, I did. And I th I'd say, um, you know, um, my program at University of Toronto had a, had a co-op program that allowed you to do internships throughout your four years of school. Um, it, it was very interesting, you know, I, having been very, uh, intrigued about the internet and I've been building websites since I was young. My first internship was at Microsoft, uh, in 2006 during the whole Vista and office, um, kind of blow up where, where Microsoft for the first time ever, I'd say, uh, started to struggle through not releasing a great, um, operating system. Um, from that, I went on to finance. So my next a uh, couple of jobs was in sales and trading. So I worked at BNP Paribas, um, the large French bank in equity derivative sales, uh, then landed a job at Merrill Lynch, uh, again, during a pretty crazy time. Uh, when I was there that summer, uh, the bank actually uh, merged and collapsed uh, with Bank of America. And so I was at, the, I was at Merrill Lynch during the, that whole fiasco. And then uh, the Clinton Foundation uh, in New York, where I worked uh, for the Clinton Global Initiative. It's the annual conference that Bill Clinton uh, hosts every year. Uh, and then after that, I landed uh, full-time on the trading floor at CIBC, uh, one of the big Canadian banks. Uh, so yeah, all types of different, different uh, fields. And I'd say all of them, you know, numbers being very important, uh, but then ultimately left uh, finance pretty soon after joining you know, the world is very different. Uh, the world had just recovered from a, from a global financial collapse. This was 2012, uh, 2011, 2012. Um, and just finance was very different. You know, I'd say a lot of young people coming out of schools during that time, it was a very different time. And, and uh, it's really when tech and startups really start to pick up. Um, so this is 2012. And since then, I've been uh, building and working, you know, for myself and on my own companies. So then that's really interesting because you literally went from working at big banks and, you know, kind of like the, the traditional journey of, you know, everything being stable and so forth. But it seems like the, uh, the, the, the economic crisis and, and that, that market correction, perhaps, you know, that shaked everything a little bit up and also, you know, shaked you a little bit too because you literally went from, banking and all of that traditional, you know, journey to, to literally going at it as an entrepreneur and, and more than anything, going at it with something completely different, which was, you know, really the uh, entertainment and, and music stuff. So, so what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, some of the best, um, and one of the key traits of being successful as an entrepreneur is being able to adapt. Um, you know, my first company 
was in the music entertainment industry. And it was tough. You know, it was tough to raise money. Um, it was tough to, uh, you know, even attract talent unless you're attracting talent who are passionate about music because there just wasn't a lot of music, sorry, a lot of money in the music industry back then. Um, of course, the music industry now is at its all-time peak. Um, it's, you know, higher than it was prior to Napster and MP3s and, you know, piracy. Um, but the challenge back then was, you know, investors didn't want to invest in a space that they thought was dying because people didn't want to buy music. Um, but we made it work. We built a company and sold it to a company that ended up going public called SFX Entertainment. Uh, they IPO'd on the NASDAQ in 2013. And uh, I stayed on for about a year. Uh, and it was really there that I got the idea for Drop. Uh, the name Drop comes from the term bass drop from, from electronic dance music. And uh, the idea came about uh, through really the CEO of SFX saying, hey, what do you think about building loyalty program for music festivals? And so I started looking into the loyalty space and realized how old and archaic and outdated the, the industry was. And uh, that's really how I you know, started digging into to the whole industry and realized that there was something bigger beyond music festivals. Uh, this is 2014 now. And uh, by then I had convinced my brother, Darren, uh, who was in San Francisco, uh, to come join, uh, to come join and start the company. So uh, we did that and uh, started operating, uh, you know, January 2016. And uh, uh, it's been, you know, a wild and fun and exciting, but challenging last couple of years. But, you know, I, I think that there really isn't um, a direct, clear tie-in to, to music and, and rewards. But I will say, you know, the one similarity that I think is, is important is they, they both involve um, you know, thing, uh, building products that are fun and rewarding for consumers, uh, things that are entertaining. Um, and they're both about, uh, you know, uh, uh, they're both industries that evolve and change very quickly. So, uh, yeah, that's how uh, it all got started. That's amazing, especially that the fact that you got your brother, because you also had your brother on Tunsi. So, uh, so uh, you know, after that yeah. experience, you know, it seems that, you know, he went at it a little bit more on the on the safe side, you know, working with companies like Amazon or Eventbrite. So how the hell do you convince him to, to really go at it again and start putting fires out? <laughs> well, believe it or not, the first idea um, and concept for Drop was actually going to be a event ticketing loyalty type of product where uh, we would uh, essentially, um, you know, take your tickets of... Uh, whether it's a music festival or shows or whatever, and uh, through your email, uh, scrape your email and, and consolidate all your tickets and onto an app and then give you points uh, for going to shows and spending money. So that was the original idea. Um, and he got it and he had that experience. Um, and so uh, that's how it all started. And, you know, I pitched him a ton of ideas like crypto and payments, but it didn't get him excited. Um, but, you know, uh, drop and and... Uh, rewards and making consumers happy and giving them ways to save money is super exciting. So that's how I uh, convinced him to join uh, join me with Drop. Very cool. So then, tell us about like the um, you know how was that process of of really putting something you know out there, something that you you know could start to get some data points and to you know perhaps you know get to that promised land of a product market fit. What did that look like? I mean, I think at the end of the day. Um, 
and that's a great question. You know, consumers have so much choice. Um, consumers have so much choice and they have so many options. Um, and the word product market fit has evolved so much. Uh, when you look at, you know, 2012, when I first started in tech, product market fit um, was really about growth. It was about how many users are using your product. Um, and, uh, you know, are they downloading your app? Um, and that was at a time when there's, you know, not as many apps out there. And so it was much easier to get consumers' attention, and it was just much easier to get them to use your app. Um, I'd say that in today's, you know, day and age on product market fit, it's gone beyond just growth and vanity metrics and numbers like, you know, downloads, installs, or even metrics like, you know, active users. I'd say that product market fit truly now is if you pull your consumer and ask them if, if drop disappeared or if my product disappeared tomorrow, you know, would you be upset? And so that is the, you know, more accurate way, I believe, to really measure product market fit is in a world where consumers have so many apps and there's so much stuff going on, you know, can, are you able to be on their home screen of their app um, versus how many people are downloading your product? I'd say that, um, especially in a world where there's so many companies raising money and it's, you know, easier than ever before to drive you know, installs or registrations, I think it's it's deeper now in the funnel um, beyond just top line metrics like that. And that's very interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, that's also something that I typically, you know, have done, uh, you know, as an operator. And and basically that question, you know, like where you ask them how, how disappointed you would be if you could no longer use this. You know, and, and you give them like the three answers, like not disappointed uh, uh, at all or super extremely disappointed or somehow disappointed if you don't get like the super extremely disappointed to be let's say over 60 percent you need to go back to the to the drawing board but i guess in your guys's case what did it take in order to get to that 60 plus percent of people being super disappointed yeah i'd say um you know making the product super seamless i'd say um you know, was probably the biggest thing we could do, you know, with the product where you're giving away points um, uh, to consumers, I think it's having relevancy. So having the relevant brands, I think it's making it super seamless. Um, and I think it's, you know, customer support and customer service. I think consumers, um, consumers these days expect a lot. And I think, um, you know, ensuring all those things um, are working uh, were very important for us as we, you know, got to, um, product market fit. Got it. Got it. And then just so that for the people that are listening to really get it, what what is the business model of Drop? Like, how do you guys make money? Yeah. So we we drive value to both our our members and our uh, partners. Uh, members being you know users like uh, yourself, myself. Um, uh, those users come onto the platform and save money through spending with our many retailers and brands, um, and then. Uh, the brands and the partners that we work with, you know, um, many, many of the top uh, brands that you'll recognize like Uber, Walmart, Sephora, um, Lululemon, uh, Instacart, for example, uh, we help them drive sales. We help them drive sales. We help them acquire users. And uh, put simply, they pay us for that. So that's how the product works. It's quite simple. Um, you know, they view Drop as a platform like Facebook, like Google, where they can advertise, but where we're very different is we can, because we have payment data, we can prove to them that we're driving, you know, the incrementality or the sales that we say we do. And, you know, it's, it's funny that you say it's quite simple. 
but really reaching that simplicity is just so complicated, and especially to to do it in a way in which you also get investors excited, especially you know like from a a company that is based out of in Canada, Toronto. You know, I think that it's it's definitely an ecosystem that is a that is booming now. But you know, uh, the, you know, some years ago, perhaps when you guys got started in 2015, it was obviously not nearly as developed as it is today. So, can you walk us through that fundraising uh, journey? How that has been for you guys? And and also, let's start with with how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, uh, today we've raised uh, around 70 million US. Um, so we're Series B company. Uh, we did our first uh, pre-seed round. Again, we now are in the world where there's pre-seed rounds. Uh, we did uh, 750,000 pre-seed, uh, 4 million seed. Uh, we did a 21 million Series A and then a 44 million Series B. Um, those numbers include both uh, mostly equity, but it have some debt in it as well. Um, and so when you really add up, you know, um, it, it, it's somewhere between 70, and 70 bucks, 70 million dollars um, uh, for the company. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's evolved quite a lot. You know, our first round was done off of really an idea in a PowerPoint deck. Uh, this is not, you know, something that happens often. I'd say as a second time entrepreneur and having an exit under my belt. It was a lot easier to do it uh, off an idea. Um, and then our seed round uh, was done to raise money to fund our expansion into the US market. Uh, our Series A, of course, was to grow the company in US, Canada. And our Series B was to continue to fund that growth, uh, both you know, US, Canada, and, and uh, international markets. So that was, uh, yeah, that was, that's been the, the number of rounds that we've raised and the amounts. Got it. So I guess, uh, for example, like in, in your case, I mean, it seems that uh, you got a few rejections, you know, especially, you know, being in Toronto and then perhaps pitching some investors in, in let's say, in New York on the East Coast that perhaps wanted, you know, to see some operations or, or something going on. So, so how was that process for you guys and, and how did it all come together? Yeah, um, you know, I'd say that uh, if, with regards to fundraising, you know, it's pretty simple how you think about it and how I think about it. Uh, I'd say that there's three P's of fundraising. Uh, it's, it's product, progress, and people. Um, in the early days, you know, you, you, if you have one, you know, it's great. Um, and typically in the early days, it's about the people. So in our pre-seed round, we had a great idea. We had a big market and we had a team of, uh, team of three. Two of them being myself uh, and my brother, and one of them being a design co-founder, Cameron. And uh, so we had we had great design. You know, our deck was it was very tight, and so we raised our first round off of that. Um, and then uh, seed the seed round was probably one of our tougher rounds. Um, that being the fact that we lo- we were only live in Canada, we had maybe you know thirty forty thousand users. Uh, we had not yet launched in the U.S., and we were. The story was to raise money to to launch the U.S. market. Um, every VC who we talked to, you know, all the ones that said no, essentially said, "Well, why don't you launch the U.S. and come back?" And you know, funny, funny enough, I said to them, "Hey, well, I need your money to launch the U.S., so I can't." Um, and so, probably in that round, we talked to maybe forty investors, you know, thirty to forty, um, and uh, I'd say the vast majority you know, 90, 
95% said no. Uh, I'd say that I probably had to do, you know, 20 something, 25 uh, or so pitches before we get our first, okay, this is interesting. Let's <laughs> dig a bit deeper. Um, and so it was tough. It was tough because it was a bit of a chicken and the egg, but I'd say in that case, perseverance paid off. Um, you know, we, we, uh, and storytelling is very important as well. I'd say in, in the early days where you don't have the numbers, but you can tell a great story. So that was our seed round. Uh, our series A was pretty nuts. We launched the U S in October of 2017, hit number two in the app store, you know, hit half a million, you know, we were adding more users than we did in one month than all of the prior year. Um, and so that was a very different time where we had investors, you know, competing to invest money into drop. But I'd say, uh, you know, when you think about the three P's, uh, the first round we had people, the second round we had the products, the third round, the series A, we had progress. Um, and then it comes the series B. I'd say the series B um, continues to, get to become very, very tough for entrepreneurs and founders because, uh, you know, not only do you need to have the right growth and metrics, but it has to work. Like your business model has to work. You need to, you know, show that you can make money, you know, economics, payback, you know, all these fun, fun uh, concepts uh, that investors ask you. And I mean, they typically will ask you in earlier rounds as well, but the Series B is typically where the rubber hits the road. So, you know, we're very, um, we're very uh, happy and and uh, also lucky to you know have raised our Series B, especially in a world where you know post WeWork meltdown, uh, it's it's only going to get tougher to raise money for uh, entrepreneurs and founders. Absolutely, absolutely. So then, in this case, uh, when when you guys were like dealing with your you know earlier round, I mean, obviously it was uh, the challenging you know phases. Uh, you had, you know, on one end, you know, you were running out of money, but then also needing the money. So how do you go about it so that you're not sounding desperate and you're you're continuing to be a strategic while at the same time you're seeing that bank account going down? It's hard. It's hard. I'd say, at, at, to be honest, there's no playbook. There's no, you know, one thing to do. I'd say if I were to summarize it to one thing, I think you have to be passionate um, and believe in yourself and believe in your company. Um, I think, I think everyone has to be in early startups. I think, um, if you're not, you know, you just won't get back. You won't get through those days when you look at your bank account and have no money or the days where, you know, your top employee leaves or your top investor, um, you know, decides to not invest in your next round. Uh, the only way to get through some of those tough, tough times is just being passionate about what you're doing because, it will be tough. It'll be a lot of ups and downs. And, and, uh, I think, you know, to me, that's how I got through it is just believing in yourself and, and, uh, and being passionate about what you're doing. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting here, uh, Derek, that you were mentioning about the, the rejections that you got. I mean, like 40, 40 or so rejections. I mean, that's obviously, you know, like for anyone, you know, that's, that's tough to swallow. Uh, and, you know, I find that that definitely entrepreneurship is like a mental, it's a mental challenge, no? especially when you're on the downs and let's say when you're receiving all these rejections, how do you, how, I mean, obviously you, you question yourself and you ask yourself, you know, whether you need to continue or whether you're being crazy. I mean, how, how do you keep it moving when, when you're 
you know, dealing with with a situation like that of of perhaps doubt. Yeah, I'd say, um, I'd say, you know, the the one big theme for me this year is work life harmony. I think it's it's at the end of the day, um, you know, having other things going on, ha- re- recognizing that it's not the end of the world that. You know the world will the world will move on and and the, you know there that that um there's all you know also people out there that are probably dealing with even more challenging things i think it's um just finding you know whether it's finding outlets finding balance um you know of course mindfulness and and meditation and you know being healthy are all great things um so it is hard i'd say a lot of entrepreneurs i've seen uh, do well. I've seen some burn out, you know, for those who burn out, I think they, they just don't find ways to have that, you know, work life harmony and they overwork themselves or they, you know, try to control things that are out of their control. So I'd say that, um, it's really having this more holistic approach and dealing with life and with problems with that, you know, same, uh, same mentality. Got it. And in terms of, um, I mean, you were talking now about the, the financing cycle and how you guys have jumped from one to another. I mean, it seems that obviously you guys did a really interesting transition there from early stage to growth and, and scale. And when you are at, at, at in that transition or perhaps, you know, like at it, you know, it's also very interesting the, let's say, how you're able to scale the most important thing, which is, you know, you also alluded to it, which is the people that are helping you to push things forward. No? So when you're really at the level of scale and growth, how do you make sure that that culture, you know, still has the, the 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 pillars and the founding building blocks. You know, when you were, let's say, at an early stage, and it's easier to to keep things intact. You know, now you guys have been growing, you know, very rapidly. I see that closing in a uh, hundred employees. So, how how do you go about that? Um, I say first, you know, it start it starts from the top. So it's as a founder, um, living the values and living you know, what you want your employees and team to live uh, yourself. So I think it's recognizing that I think is very important. I think, um, you know, once we got to, I'd say 30, 40 plus employees, that's when I started feeling um, the challenges of of having a bigger team and scaling and not being able to talk to everyone all the time and town halls and all hands and these, these meetings becoming more, um, you know, not, not only bigger, but more important for me as a founder CEO to, make sure I say the right things and communicate the right things. Because again, in the early days, you just kind of go, you just kind of talk and people, everyone knows exactly what's going on. But as a company gets big, there's just so much going on. Um, I'd say this, I'd say the second thing really is just having um, the values laid out. You know, we laid out our company's core values um, really early on. I'd say in the first year, you know, like we're a five, six person company, but um, understanding early on and then, in, you know, institutionalizing it uh, as you grow in scale uh, from everywhere from interviews um, to, you know, po- you know, to laying it out uh, more formally through documents um, to some, you know, as simple as reiterating it and repeating it at, at you know, meetings. Um, uh, but again, I think it all starts from, from hiring and ensuring that every person that is interviewing knows what the core values are and knows what it actually means, knows how they look in, in real life, and then knows how to ask and interview candidates based on uh, those core values. 
So then, for example, in your guys' case, what are your uh, guys' core values and how did you guys come up with them? Yeah, um, I mean, how I came up with it, I think I, at the time, to be honest, was, you know, when we're tiny team was just thinking through, okay, how did I get to where I am today? What do I think is important? And what do I think I is important for this company to succeed specifically? Um, so uh, hustle, grit, humility, and passion. Uh, hustle is very important. You know, in the early days, uh, I had to hustle to get all the deals done. Uh, when you have no users on your platform and you have to go pitch a retailer to pay you money <laughs> to, to be on your platform, it's not easy. Um, so it took a lot of hustle. You know, I had to find ways to executives at companies through a lot of, you know, uh, very creative means. Um, so hustle is important. Uh, grit, you know, when I say grit, that, that alludes to the whole fundraising story. Um, had I given up at the 20, you know, fourth investor, I wouldn't have not met number 25. And that was the investor that first started digging in. Or if I give up at number, you know, 30, I would have missed out on number 31, who, you know, may have been the investor that ultimately would write the write the check. So, uh, you know, grit's very important. I'd say humility is very important. Uh, humility, I think, is very important because the moment you think, you know, everything is perfect and there's no need for innovation or no need to be different or no need to reinvent or make yourself better, I'd say, is the moment that you become, you know, obsolete and complacent as either a person or a company. Um, and we saw that in the loyalty world and, you know, I said to myself, I never want us or myself to ever be like that. Um, and, the, and the last one is passion. And that's where, as I mentioned, in those dark, dark days, um, passion gets you through it. I think uh, in those moments where, uh, you know, whether you're a founder or an employee, where, where the company is running, running out of money or, or the company loses someone, I think it's that, you know, belief and passion that gets people through it. So those are our core values. and. Um, and it just happened very organically, um, uh, which I think is awesome and important as as people think through these for their own companies. Very profound. So, uh, Derek, where do you think that the fintech and commerce are going as a whole? Great question. I think, um, you know, over the last couple of months, uh, there's been a lot that's been happening in our space. Uh, so Drop is a mobile rewards app. Uh, you link your payment cards and get points for spending. Um, on drop at large retailers like Uber, uh, you know, Whole Foods, Amazon, uh, et cetera. And uh, uh, PayPal in, in uh, uh, December acquired a company called Honey for $4 billion. Yeah. And uh, Visa just acquired a company called Plaid for $5.3 billion. $5. Yeah. Um, and so these are both, you know, to me, big data points um, for our space. It shows that, hey... Uh, a lot of you know financial services companies like PayPal and Visa and whether it's a payment network payment network or a bank, you know they're all looking to build more direct relationships with consumers. They think um, you know it's important for them to be able to influence consumers and in how they think about payment um, before checkout. So um, I think that's going to be a big theme. I think we're going to see more and more financial services companies partnering or acquiring. Um, commerce companies. Um, I do think that within the next five years, there's going to be what I, you know, what people call the rebundling of the bank. So uh, the last five years in fintech has been about the unbundling. You know, every startup is going after a particular product um, to compete with the bank. You know, whether it's a checking account, savings, credit card, debit, lending. 
Um, but over the next you know, five to 10 years, I think that there's going to be a lot of consolidation. I think a lot of um, a lot of companies will realize that, wow, as a standalone company that only targets and is building a checking account, that's not big enough as a business. You know, either they have to roll out new products and services or they're going to have to get acquired. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot of that happening um, over the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. I also think that there's going to be a lot of a uh, lot more companies out there that will allow uh, new companies and founders to create products a lot quicker. So, for example, uh, you know, companies that are more, you know, either APIs or companies that will allow you to, to launch a credit card in six months, for example. Uh, the speed to market is a lot quicker now for companies to launch fintech products. Uh, regulation um, has has been, you know, a lot looser as well. So I think these are also the things that we're going to see. Um, I think the big one for us is going to be, you know, more and more retailers and marketers looking to spend outside of Google and Facebook because Google and Facebook is becoming very expensive. And, uh, you know, instead of paying for eyeballs or paying for clicks, uh, I think the future is going to be paying for, um, for dollars and paying for, you know, sales and paying for guaranteed sales. And so that's what we do. Um, that's where we think the world is going. And we're, you know, pretty excited to be in midst of all of these uh, trends that all seem to be working in our favor. Very nice. And one of the questions that I typically ask the folks that come on the show is, if you had, I mean, here you are, you know, you, you've done already an exit. Now you've, you build a business that obviously is bringing value and the investor community has seen that because you've raised now over 70, over 70 million. So really exciting stuff. Also fintech, commerce. So I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time and you had that chance of speaking to your younger self, to that younger Derek, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a company and why? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'd say, um, wow, I'd say if I were to talk to my, okay, so I'd say I, I, this is, I mean, I'll, I'll list some things that are specific to drop. Um, uh, I'll list some things that I think are also, you know, for those listening and, and new entrepreneurs, I think would be, would be super helpful. I think, I think often when you start companies, you know, you get very excited um you know we did for sure like we launched we quit our jobs and we you know did a lot of things really quickly um but what we i'd say i wish we solved for quicker or thought through quicker was were, were things that you know that we think a lot about now um you know business models and and defensibility and and uh you know how does how how will the the math work um, I think it's, I think a lot of founders just get really excited and just dive in, but I think a lot of them, uh, you know, don't think through some of those things. I think another big one is, you know, launching in Canada versus launching in the U S uh, we launched Canada first and then launched the U S uh, what I tell entrepreneurs here in Canada and, you know, specifically, um, when they're in early stages is just launch the U S you know, when you launch in Canada, you can do some testing. Uh, but ultimately, launch the U.S. That's where the market is. Um, you know, a lot of founders here, again, whether, whether it's Canada or in other, you know, smaller markets, they um, they don't think, you know, big enough. I, I think sometimes, and I think that 
Um, they also don't realize how, you know, a lot of capital, a lot of money, you know, it's betting on, on larger markets. Um, and so that's another one I'd say um, is, is um, important. Um, I'd say that another, you know, the last one I'd, I'd say is uh, not focusing on, on hiring um, and, and setting the bar, you know, high, 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 high enough earlier on. Um, I'd say early on, a lot of people uh, just want people to help them. Um, and, you know, we definitely brought on a lot of great support and help in the early days. Um, but now looking back and just looking at drop in and, you know, startups and success, ultimately it comes down to people in the team. Uh, you know, we're not a uh, construction company where, you know, you need the best machines uh, or a, you know, real estate company where you need the best location. In the world of startups, it's about the best people. Um, the best engineers, the best salespeople, marketers. And so um, I think, you know, early on when you raise money and raise capital um, in a world where you have, you know, the ability to spend money on different things, I'd, I'd say that uh, spending money on a, on a recruiter uh, in the early days and just, you know, saying to that recruiter, hire me the best, you know, these types of people, um, it'll go a long, long way. And having that top talent early on will only attract, attract uh, more and more uh, top talent as well. Love it. Love it. Very cool. So Derek, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, uh, you can tweet uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Thung Money. Uh, it's a catchy one uh, that hopefully people won't forget. So Twitter right. um, and, uh, you know, my email is out there. Uh, I'm sure for those who who can hustle will find their way to uh, get to me through email, but Twitter, uh, LinkedIn are uh, two great ways uh, to connect. Amazing. Well, Derek, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.